You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. All right, fam, we're doing a four-week money series. We'll be in different texts every week, hitting some of the biggest passages on money in the New Testament. But I want to address something first. Then why preach on money? I know it can feel offensive to people. It can feel impolite. It's definitely uncomfortable because we care about money so much. But I want to give you three, I think, incredible reasons that we should preach on money often. And the first one is this, is money is likely stressing you out. As survey after survey after survey, the number one stressor in marriages, you guessed it, it's money which is no surprise since 73% of all Americans say their number one worry in life is money. See, the thing is, it's not just about quality of life either. It's also about quantity of life. Research suggests that if you're stressed out, you will live seven to 15 years shorter than someone who's not stressed out. So if money's the number one stressor and stress is literally killing us, then we have to make a choice. Either we dive into meaty topics like money or we let money run our life. Whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we have a little or a lot, it doesn't really matter. The stress is the same. So we preach on money because our human ideas on money clearly aren't working. And so it leads to a second reason. We preach on money because Jesus preaches on money. Because God's word talks about money. And just like today's passage, Jesus talks very clearly and poignantly on money. And Jesus doesn't talk about money most. That's a myth. That's a convenient myth. Jesus talks about the gospel and God the most. Because the Bible is a book about the good news that God saves sinners, not a book about good advice. However, when you are receiving the salvation of Jesus, it transforms our heart. And a transformed heart transforms every area of our life, including our wallet. But if you're a new Christian, it's often the wallet that's the last transformation. People tend to live worldly, even though they've started following Jesus, even for long periods of time, hanging on to what is the security blanket of dollar bills and bank accounts. And I don't want us to be an immature church. I don't want us to stay in adolescence of following Jesus, trusting in things other than Jesus or things only Jesus can give. And that leads to the third and final reason. I want you to experience the blessed life of following Jesus. This passage, Matthew 6, it's right in the middle of a sermon Jesus gives called the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus' longest sermon. It is his most famous sermon, and it's a sermon about what is the blessed life with God. He says, blessed are those that, and then he gives teaching after teaching of what that looks like. And the blessed life with God is that you would live with God through Jesus Christ, that through Jesus's gospel, you would have life with God again. And then Jesus gives ethical teachings in virtually every area of life, including money, right in the middle to say money doesn't have to be a curse of stress. Money doesn't need to be your God. Instead, money can be the gift that it is from God to live life under God's rule, with God's care, 
following Jesus forever, and that money can actually be part of the blessed life with God. The blessed life of God is not about financial prosperity, but rather about the presence of God in your life. And that's my hope that as the series unfolds, you would see that money doesn't have to be the worst part of your life, but could be just part of your life, of a larger life with God. And this passage gives us three sets of warnings and promises. Jesus gives rapid fire here saying, here's a warning, here's a promise, here's a warning, here's a promise, here's a warning and a promise. And the first warning and promise is on treasure, heaven, and hearts. Look at verse 19. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Your heart follows your treasure. The warning here is is pretty clear, but it's so precious because we think, man, I better invest myself in earth, invest myself in my life, invest in the things of this world. Jesus is telling us what we deep down know, that all of our wealth and investments will not last. Everything decays. Even things like gold that are valued because they don't decay will one day disappear in the last day. Furthermore, people will take your stuff. Your stuff will get divided up at wills at the end of your life. The government takes a big old slice all the time. People will steal your stuff. Everyday loss of finances is true. Investing in earth, laying up treasures on earth is a risky investment. Yet Jesus promises that we can invest in something now that cannot be stolen, it cannot rot, and it will never disappear. That when you give and spend for the kingdom of God, which is God's good purpose in the world, like giving to a local church, giving to missions, giving to mercy, which is helping people, we're actually investing in wealth that awaits us in heaven. Giving is the transfer of wealth from earth to heaven. You're not actually losing anything. You're actually gaining everything of an investment that's not going to fade away at your death but it's going to last forever more. See, when you give to citizens, you are actually investing in heaven. Do you see it like that? It's not just getting funneled away to account to be spent on such and such. Sure, one day it will be saved and spent in different ways, but it's actually investing in heaven. The work of the local church to make disciples, to obey the mission of God, to care for each other, to help each other grow, to reach our neighbors and to reach the nations. There's no more important investment in the entire world. It's better than Apple stock 15 years ago. It's going to mature for the rest of 80 billion years. And here's the question. When you see this work of the gospel through the local church, that it's investing in mature in eternity and it's maturing and maturing, it's going to mature forevermore. Do you see how much your marriage is worth? Do you value how your kids grow up? Do you value your neighbor enough to invest in their eternity through the local church? Do you value the nations enough to invest in eternity? Do you value yourself enough? 
that if God's vehicle for the gospel flourishing of his people is the local church, do you value that you need one another and you need to invest literally in yourself and the person to your left and right? Do you see that you're worthy of the expenditure of your own money and so is the person next to you? Do you see how that's connected? Most Christians are struggling. Think about those friends from high school or college or wherever. Think about how many are like really thriving, how many are not. I don't know if it's like, my, like me, but most of them are struggling. And I'd have to say here at Citizens, we're guy in year two, three, there are a lot of people thriving and a lot of people learning to thrive. And when you invest in that, you're investing in your eternity, but also their eternity, and also the next neighbor's eternity, and also the nation's eternity, and also works of mercy eternity. We're not wasting time. We're not wasting money. We're not wasting your talents. We're investing in things and work that reverberates in heaven forevermore. When the church starts doing other things than that, the church becomes a mess and loses its mission. But we have a mission, though it's somewhat invisible, we can also see the evidences of it all the time. As you reflect back on your years, you reflect back how you've grown, as you reflect back how you've changed, you reflect back and seeing the gospel prosper in other people's lives. Our clothes will rot. Every good investment on earth will wobble. Our houses are always decaying. Who's doing some housework? All right, you get a little time off around the holidays, you eventually just start working on the yard. It just happens. Our cars need maintenance. Every time I get an oil change, I think about like, my goodness, these cars, they don't just run perfectly forever. It is a thing to take care of, like everything on earth. And it's time to look and say, when I lay up treasure in heaven, I'm rejecting trusting money to make me happy on earth. Because most of the reason we love money is we keep buying what advertisements sell us, that money will make me happy. It can be rough not having enough money to make ends meet. That can bring a lot of poverty and sadness, for sure. But money is meant to meet our needs, not to make us happy. When we trust money to make us happy, we end up in a perilous place where we never have enough, and the next thing is never enough either. And I want to use Jesus' words to pastor you right now a little bit, church. If you find yourself cold towards God and towards the local church, it might be time to ask yourself, have I really genuinely invested my treasure with God? Or does holding on the money somewhere over here make sure my heart never is really on fire for God or his people? If you want your heart to be on fire for God, just hot, want as much God in your life, as much people in your life as possible, the logs that God's going to heat it up with are your investments of treasure, time, and talent. You want a cold heart? Remove all the fuel. If you want to take your resources and push in, God's going to use it to burn your heart hot for him. Don't take my word for it. Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your mind drifts. Maybe it's to worry or maybe it's to wonder at a mighty God. 
The second warning and promise, verse 22, it can be a little confusing. It needs a little explanation, but it's so key to our understanding. It says the eye, I'm going to use the word heart here, is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body's full of light. But if your eye heart is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, they use the word eye here, but in that time and culture, that's a similar to our concept of heart. It's talking about the center guiding essentialness of you. So it's saying if your heart is set on the wrong things, your body's going to feel lost. Your life's going to feel lost. The room's going to be dark. You ever walk around in the dark without a light on and you bump into something and stub your toe? Hopefully you don't say a bad word and then you fall over. That's me and Legos almost once a week, okay? And it's saying the same. If you set your heart on not the things of God, your life's going to be dark and confusing. It's just going to be really hard to get anything done for the kingdom of God, at least. But if you give your heart, give your eye over to the things of God, it will illuminate and make the rest of your body make sense. And Jesus brings it up here because he's saying the light isn't going to come on as long as money controls you instead of me. You will remain in the dark and your darkness will be great. Why? Because money's a terrible master. Your money doesn't love you. It doesn't respect you. It's just money. And that's a freeing thing. You might need to say that as a mantra in the car on the way home, say, it's just money. It's just money. It feels even bad to say, like, no, Justin, it's so precious. I need more of it. What are you talking about? It's just money. It's a tool, but it's a terrible master. And the third promise and warning is this, verse 24, and it gets to the deepest truth of the passage. It says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you're wondering, like, what's this passage talking about? It gets pretty clear here. Jesus is about as clear as a man can possibly get with us because he knows our hearts are hard. And Jesus loves talking about money and all of his parables. You know why? Because money reveals our heart. It's like an x-ray machine. Flip on finances, you see what we're about, for better or worse. And you cannot serve two masters. Eventually, they're going to be in conflict. You end up devoted to one and despising the other. Check this out. You cannot be committed to yourself as master and Jesus. Jesus teaches quite clearly that we must deny ourselves, deny what we want in order to follow what God desires for our life. Jesus doesn't follow us around as butler, but instead leads us as the loving Lord of the universe to the blessed life with him. Look at this way. You cannot be committed to both politics as master and Jesus because Jesus has no allegiance to either party. Following Jesus will make you too liberal for conservatives on some issues and also too conservative for liberals on other issues. Furthermore, Jesus invites us to have a hope beyond the next election cycle. When you meet Christians in crisis every two to four years, it shows that their master ultimately isn't Jesus. We can care about these real issues. We can care about being a great citizen of our democracy. But look, the end of the day, I'm a citizen of heaven first. And if I get it twisted, then I'm going to be in conflict all the time. But it's also a false conflict because I belong to Jesus and the rest comes second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, a hundredth. And Jesus is saying the same way with money. 
You can't serve Jesus and money. Church, think about the idea that God is unwilling to share you. God loves you so much. I'm I'm not here to share. Your relationship with Jesus is like a marriage. He is unwilling to share you with other lovers like money. He actually doesn't want you to be with lovers less wild than him. He is the only husband that loves you all the way down completely and will never turn his back or betray you. And he's saying, money will betray you. It's a false hope. Both now and eternally, if money makes you miserable, I would suggest you're letting money be your master. If when money comes up, you just immediately, man, I'm miserable. It's a cause of stress and worry. I would say that's a sign, even if you're a good budgeter, even if you make lots of money, even if you don't have money. Money can be your master no matter how big or small your bank account is. It's a state of the heart, not a status of your finances. And Jesus is teaching the blessed life with God includes letting God, not money, rule your life. And what does a God-ruled life with money really look like? Because I think we're all pretty confused. We kind of have a mix of good teaching and worldly teaching, our family habits. There's a lot of research that says by the time you're like six or seven, a lot of your money habits have already been set by your household growing up which I believe all people can change, so have hope. <laughs> but you have all sorts of stuff in the pot of your heart and mind when it comes to money. That's what people don't want to talk about because it means untangling an awful lot. But I want to give us four clear foundations from the Bible, some in this passage, that just reset what we believe about money. They give us a foundation to build on and to grow with. You'll see them right here in your bullets, and it's a great opportunity to do what we talked about earlier. Four foundations, classic Christian teachings right here to reset our relationship on money, to put God first. First, realize the greatest value in life isn't money at all. Realize the greatest value in life isn't money at all. Jesus said this in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, in his joy, He hid it again, sold everything he owned to get enough money to go buy the field. The kingdom of heaven is a a word for gospel. It's life with God through Jesus. And when you see the beauty of Jesus, in your joy, you would sell all to get this great treasure. To truly know Jesus is to see his great value as surpassing any other value. Money becomes a non-issue. Even if you have to let go of all your funds to have Jesus, it wouldn't be a problem because Jesus outweighs all the money ever printed, all the gold ever fought over and collected. The first foundation we must reorder to just say money is no longer the most valuable thing. The most valuable thing is a person and his name is Jesus. And the second foundation is this. Realize God created all, therefore, God owns it all. We don't own the money in our bank. And that's a revolutionary concept. That God actually owns all of our money and we are just stewards or caretakers or money managers for his purposes, not ours. This isn't just Christians. All people everywhere, all money is God's. 
Everyone who doesn't use it for God's purpose is in flagrant disobedient to the God who gave all things. And you might think about it, it's like, man, I work hard for my money. What are you talking about, Justin? But who gave you life? You don't even think about breathing oxygen all day. Who created that? Who gave you the skills and body to earn money? Who set up cities and economies and governments and countries and cultures to even have a system to exchange money in? What about all the raw materials in the world? Rub your hand over your iPhone or your smartphone, but don't play Angry Birds. But every single molecule, atom, every little piece of that was created by God. It was only by us crafted and built into this thing of glass and steel and electricity. There was no part of the iPhone nor your body that was not personally created by God. And when you put it in that perspective, of course the numbers in the bank account aren't mine. I'm just a steward. I'm just a steward moving through life. Maybe I've been blessed with a lot or a little. It doesn't really matter. The third foundation is this. Giving towards heaven is the only safe investment. Giving towards heaven is the only safe investment. Giving is nonsense as long as you believe this life or maybe the metaverse is ultimately where you belong. Giving doesn't make any sense if you think this life is all there is. It doesn't make sense. But for those who follow Jesus, who belong to God, who have eternity set before us, a promised heaven, Therefore, giving makes tons of sense that it's the only safe and lasting investment. To spend our money only concerned about our 80 years here is so short-sighted when there's 80 billion plus years to come. There's a temporariness that totally doesn't make sense to invest your whole life in. But there's a future that makes all the sense in the world. And it's investment that's promised that won't rot, that won't disappear, that can't get cut up in our will, that will last forever. The fourth and final foundation is generous giving frees us from the grip of greed. Giving is the joyful surrender to a greater person in Jesus and a greater agenda, God's mission. And by doing that, it dethrones me and exalts God. Because I am giving to something that is not my personal agenda nor my personal glory. What if God prospers you not to raise your standard of living in life, but to raise your standard of giving? What if God is giving you more money than you need so that you can give generously? Most of us kind of want to wait till we make it to give a real percentage of our income. And if you wait till you make it, you will likely never be a generous giver. Don't take my word for it. That's straight from our Lord in Luke 16. He says, the one who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much. But the one who's dishonest in little is also dishonest in much. And church, if Jesus offends you when it comes to money, then no, money, not Jesus, is probably your functional God. If Jesus' words even now are offending you deeply or make you think, how dare you? Well, look in the mirror. Why does this offend me? Why is this controversial to me? And that's a real question to ask before your Savior, not before me, but before your Savior. And I want you to know, if your finances are really struggling, if you're struggling with these things, if some of this sounds impossible, 
know that God wants to turn it around. It's not too late. You can become faithful with very little right away. It can start today. That's how the gospel works. The same with sin and salvation. You're never too far from God. He's the one who came near us. And in the same way, if your finances are really struggling, then I'm going to suggest you probably need financial coaching. If you dug yourself in a big hole, you're probably not going to be the person to dig yourself out. Just like with fitness, just like with relationships, just like with career help, there's a humility just to ask for help. And guess what prayer God kind of answers throughout the Bible? Everybody who says help. <laughs> if you can put your hand up, not now, well, I mean, if you want to get bold and really lead the way, both in worship and finances, throw your hand up. But if you can put your hand up to God and say, help me, I want to obey. Okay, I, I get it. I, I believe the scriptures. I believe what Justin's saying. I want help, God. That's a prayer God's going to answer. And that's a prayer God will probably answer through this very church. If you want help, ask your CG leader. Ask me. I know many people who love coaching people in finances, and I would love to pair you with them not people to judge you or to hurt you in any way, but to help you and to say, it doesn't have to be like last year. It doesn't have to be like the last decade. There can be a new future for you. And what if God wants to use your financial struggles to knit you together with others instead of the shame of finances stealing your joy at every transaction? Do you believe that God wants to use every part of your life for you to grow in him? because I do. It's not just like this one and that one and this one. It's all of it. God didn't die for part of you. He died for all of you. And he wants to transform every little part of your life. Consider this. What if the problem is the path and that right here is the place, your finances, is where God wants you to have deeper, richer, more vulnerable relationships? See, everyone wants deep relationships, but the price of them is consistency and vulnerability. Sharing financial data is a great way to get to consistent vulnerability and sharing. And while the price feels high, the reward of transformation and community is even greater. The price feels high, but I bet when you're in it, it won't feel so high, and the reward will grow in your heart and life. I want to challenge you. Do you believe God's plan is to provide for you in such a way that you can give generously. Do you believe, not that he prosper you to be rich, that's not a promise in the Bible, but do you believe God wants to provide for you in such a way that you can obey him in generous giving? Because that would be taking Jesus's word that he expects us to store up things in heaven that you could give a percentage of 5 or 8 or 10 or 12% of your income as not a dream and some wild thing, but a reality. And in addition to that, in learning to give and learning to trust God in this way, you would be freed from money stress. And Jesus, not money, would become your everyday master. Jesus is inviting you to trust him with the things you clutch on so tightly to loosen your grip, to hold on to him tightly, including our money. When I was a young Christian, right around 18, 19, I, I had a mentor who taught me about finances. I didn't, I didn't grow up learning a lot about finances. It was kind of making it up as I go. 
And I had a mentor kind of sit with me and he shared these convictions about large, generous percentage of my income should go to the work of God. It should go to, the, to works of mercy. It should go to missions. It should go to the local church. And he was teaching me all. And I was like, why, dude? Like, I make like no money. Like, what are we even talking about? Like, come on, dude. Like, I'm waiting tables. Like, life is hard. What are you even talking about? And he shared with me all the biblical commands. You know, he's walked through it, man. We went through Genesis, the Revelation. We walked through it. I was like, okay, well, that's a good reason. And then he looked at me, and this question changed my life. His name was Chris, and he goes, Justin, do you really want to miss out on trusting God? And I said, what do you mean? And he said something that changed my life forever. As he looked me in the eyes, and he said, well, Justin, if you live on 100% of your income to meet your every need, you don't really have to trust God for anything. you live on 100% of your income, then there's really no percentage of your life and providence that you have to trust God for. And they said, but what if you gave generously, like 10% of your income to God, trusting God to provide for you on that 90 better than you could provide on your own with your 100? And it changed my mind and heart forever because for the first time, giving was no longer something I should do, but rather giving is Jesus's way to free your soul from the grip of money. I realize God isn't poor. God doesn't need my money. That God actually wants me to be free because the stress is literally killing me and the stress is actually keeping me from God. And I have a weaker experience of God if I choose not to trust him with my money. It blew my mind. And I obeyed. Elena and I have lived like that for 13 years. And I don't say that to pump us up. I hope you rightly probably assume that me and Elena are generous givers with joy. But I want to say that to testify to God's provision, that living these convictions, the Carl family has never missed a single bill. We have never missed a single meal. Even when they started doing these with cash tips waiting tables. And God uses a vehicle both to bless us and provide, but also to teach us, teach us discipline, teach us sacrifice, teach us prayer, teach us to depend on God in the best times when it's kind of hard to trust God when things are going well, and the worst times when it's easier to trust God because you're desperate. God wants to use money, similar to worship, as a tool to form your heart. That's the big point. Like, where is all this going? It's going to you, that you would live for forever instead of just tomorrow. Listen to the wisdom of Proverbs 11.24. It's been true for us. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, becomes a poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And that's wisdom, not a promise. But boy, it strikes true to life. And citizens, we often talk about the heart, the very center of who we are, the essential you. And we talk about the heart as a garden. We say before we come to Christ, the Bible tells us we're all sinful, fallen, that our hearts um, struggle and, and don't worship God. They're sinful. They choose things other than God. And it's like a garden full of soil that's unprofitable, 
full of thorns and thistles. Nothing healthy grows. No spiritual life grows. But then we talk about when we accept the gospel, when we become Christians, God plants a new seed of Christ, and it blossoms a beautiful tree in our heart, and he starts to renew the soil. And part of our work is to continue to planting things in obedience and seeing it blossom over time and keep pulling the weeds. Keep pulling the weeds of our old life that just keep living until we pull them on out. And I want to ask us as a church, what are the weeds that keep you from obeying with joy here? What are the weeds that need to come out? And I want to name four of them that come to mind. The ones I've seen most often in pastoring these past 10, 13 years. And the first weed is this. It's just a lack of discipline. If you have no idea how much you spend, no idea how much you save, it's going to be tough to ever really give generously because you're not really in control of your finances. And without some discipline, it's easy to let finances just overwhelm you, control you. You're just always trying to make it work. And it's going to be tough to invest in anything, let alone the kingdom of God. Second weed would be consumerism. And this sounds, uh, you know, it's like, oh, that's not me. It's like, man, it's easy for it to be me. It's easy for us to be all of us. It's easy for me to think money is for me to get better and more things. That's what the economy in America, a large chunk, runs on. Just get more better. And sure, we should invest in things. We should invest in, in, in things our life, our needs. But consumerism can eat up any possibility of a generous heart. Third would be grudges. That money can't be trusted to anyone because of this person or the church or XYZ. I'm the only just owner and no one else. And if you have grudges or these kind of emotional barriers in it, I just want to suggest that grudges are like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Holding grudges against God's church, holding grudges against whatever, man, it's just self-defeating and it's just keeping you from trusting God. Whatever it may be, work through it but that's not a good weed to keep around in your heart for long. And the last one I think is the most common is fear. I fear trusting God with my money because truly money is my security. That somewhere along the way, you learned if I have enough money, I can make it work. If I don't have enough money, I can't make it work. And I would say that's a real obstacle, but I think it's a weed that can come out in faith towards God say, I don't want to live so afraid anymore. I don't want money to push me around or be my false security. Would you be bold enough to ask God to examine your heart and to ask him for the grace to repent, to change, and to live a new way and plant something new? There's a quote I love, probably from the French writer of The Little Prince that goes like this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up men and women to gather wood, divide the work, And give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. We could go further on money today. We got three more weeks to jump into different elements of a heart and what a generous heart, how's this work, how's it look. But I'd rather you just hear Jesus's next words in the Sermon on the Mount. The very next paragraph he drops still concerns money, but he expands it into all of life and what the blessed life is. And what he's doing for you is laying out a vast, endless ocean for you to yearn for. To say it's bigger than just fixing the budget this month. It's about finding the blessed life with God in all things. 
So if you need to close your eyes or read off the screen or do whatever, it'd help you meditate on these next 10 verses from the Lord. Because I just want to read it over you and let Jesus' word guide your heart and give you a vision to build a ship for. Jesus says to his people, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? The body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Do you value you like God does? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, the richest man in history, in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who do not believe, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You will never be able to take life a day at a time until your heart rests on God. You will never be comfortable in your own skin and your own clothes until you learn to gaze at God's heart for you. You will never be free from anxiousness about life until you seek God and his kingdom first. Will you let God turn on the eye, the heart of you, the lamp of your body? and make the rest of your life make sense. This is the question for citizens this month. Do you want to be anxious about money and your life forever? Or do you want to follow Jesus with your whole heart, including when it comes to money?